Our second lesson this morning can be found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 18 through 27, on page 8 in your pew Bibles, if you choose to follow along. Now when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. A scribe then approached and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. A gale arose on the lake so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Five years ago, a young couple with their two daughters were rescued by the Air National Guard, the Coast Guard, and the U.S. Navy in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, 1,200 miles from land. Eric and Charlotte Kaufman had been preparing for nearly nine years to sail their 36-foot boat named the Rebel Heart from Mexico to New Zealand with their daughters who were ages 3 and 13 months when they left for their journey. The Rebel Heart wasn't just their boat. It was their home, the only home they had. Now, Eric and Charlotte were experienced sailors. They knew what they were doing. They had prepared for every eventuality they could imagine on this adventure that they expected would take years. But out on the open water, things almost immediately went from bad to worse. Just a week into the trip, their one-year-old daughter broke out in a full-body rash. Then she started running a fever and acting lethargic. They called a doctor on their satellite phone, and the doctor advised them to start an antibiotic, which they had, and so they did. But after two days on the medicine, she hadn't improved. Then they hit some bad weather, just a part of sailing, and not necessarily a big deal. But in this case, the waves battering the boat were so strong that they caused some small breaks in the boat's hull, and it began taking on water. Then their satellite phone completely and inexplicably stopped working. Now, they had a backup communications plan, a long-range radio, but because of the water that had gotten into into the boat, the radio had been bathed in water for several days, and when they tried to send a signal with it, they heard nothing back. At this point, with their daughter getting worse, they had only one option left, 
an option from which there was no turning back. Pushing the button on a device that would send an emergency distress signal to maritime authorities who would then coordinate a rescue. Pushing that button was a big deal. Because although they would be rescued, pushing it meant they would have to sink their boat in the middle of the Pacific. They would lose their home. After making sure there was no other option, nothing else they could do to turn things around, Eric and Charlotte made the most difficult decision of their lives and sent that distress signal. Faced with the choice between saving their daughter and saving their home, they chose their daughter. And she's fine now, by the way. What the Kaufmans did not anticipate was the storm of criticism unleashed upon them when they returned to dry land. People all over the country lambasted their choice to take such young children on an expedition where so many things could go so wrong. The vast majority of people simply could not fathom why you would make your family home a sailboat on a vast and unpredictable ocean. Why would you choose to live where life could be overturned by a simple storm? It's a fair question, but it is a question that perhaps should be asked of all of us, because all we have to do is open the Bible practically at random to find a story about someone who decides to leave the comforts of a traditional home to venture into the vast and unpredictable unknown with God. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abram and Sarai to leave their home and most of their family to go to a new and unknown place where God tells them, not when they are young and mobile and up for an adventure, but when they are closer to the end of their lives than the beginning. And they do it because God promises that after not having had children for their whole married lives, they will finally have a child, and not only a child, but ancestors as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then right at the beginning of their journey, they encounter a kind of storm. The land where God tells them to go, the land of Canaan, isn't theirs for the taking. They come to the land of Canaan, the text says, and the Canaanites were in the land. It is a sentence in this text that we all too easily pass over, but for Abram and Sarai, this was surely a crisis. How could God intend this land to be theirs if the land was already occupied. This might be the first time Abram and Sarai realized the promise God made to them was not a short-term promise, but a long-term one with a longer timeline of fulfillment than they ever could have anticipated when they set out on this journey. And yet they continue on. In our second passage from Matthew, Jesus looks at the crowd of people around him and orders them to go over to the other side. 
He is inviting them to follow him from the places they know and love into an unknown future. And not tomorrow, once they've had a chance to pack up a few things and take care of some unfinished business, but right now, today, this very moment. Initially, it looks like Jesus' order will be heeded, for a religious leader walks right up to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus' response is somewhat cryptic, but from our vantage point, it's hard not to hear it as a warning. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It only makes sense if the one you are following has no home, chances are you won't either. In my study Bible, the heading of this passage from Matthew is the would-be followers of Jesus. Clearly, this editor thinks there are a lot of people out there who say they want to follow Jesus, but when it comes down to it, what Jesus asks turns out to cost too much. In these stories from Genesis and Matthew, and in many others, When individuals are invited to follow God, the choice involves giving up the safety and comfort and security of home in exchange for little more than an uncertain journey with an unknown destination. In her book on contemplative spirituality, Philena Howertz writes that at the time of conversion to Christianity, we orient our lives by the question, What can I do for God? No matter how mundane or dramatic our faith journey has been, there is a moment in the life of nearly every Christian when we claim our faith as our own and declare our willingness to live in a whole new way, to live for God. When that happens, we naturally ask, what can I do for God? But at some point, Howard says, the question changes. As we move forward in our life with God on this spiritual journey, our lives begin to orient around a different question, the question, what can God do for me? Now, this question may sound selfish when we first hear it, but that's not how Howard's means it. The question isn't about what we can get from God. It's about how God can completely transform our lives. Howard's writes, this is the central question of a humble person who has awakened to her true self and to the awe-inspiring adoration of an extraordinary God. What can God do for me? Have you ever asked that question of God? It's a question few of us ever ask in all seriousness. Because when things are going well, we think we can handle our lives just fine by ourselves. Thank you very much. We don't want to ask for help from anyone, and perhaps especially from God, unless we are truly desperate. Until then, we are much more comfortable helping God by helping others. We don't ask this question, what can God do for me, because it reminds us 
We are not as self-sufficient as we like to think we are. We are fallible, fragile, vulnerable. We need God and we need each other. To ask what God can do for me is to expose this vulnerability and admit this need. To ask what God can do for me is to risk being completely transformed. Which is why the vast majority of us will do everything we can not to ask that question until we find ourselves in a desperate situation, like Abram and Sarai, who find their new home occupied by some other people, like the disciples on the boat with Jesus that ends up right in the middle of a storm, like Charlotte and Eric Kaufman, who knew that getting the help they needed for their child meant losing the only home they had. But when we find ourselves in such a place, a place of disorientation and fear, we might just find the courage to open our hearts to God's transformative power and discover that it changes everything. A few years after Charlotte and Eric Kaufman had to sink their home in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to save their daughter's life, Charlotte wrote a blog post. She wrote it during a hurricane season as she reflected on all the stories she was reading about people losing their homes, both their land-based homes and their houseboats in the storms. She started that post with some reflections from her own experience about how to get through the early days of loss and trauma. She ended it with thoughts on what she calls the long haul. The trauma of loss will not leave you, she writes, but the way it affects you will change. You will gain perspective. I found that my heart has grown to about four times its previous size. I feel deep empathy and compassion for people in similar circumstances. I volunteer more, I give more, I reach out more. Part of what moved her to deeper empathy and compassion was the contrast between the people who rushed to judgment of their family sailing lifestyle and those who chose to support her family through the trauma of losing their home. She writes, almost everyone loves daring, dauntless people right up until the moment something goes wrong. The narrative is flipped then when adventurers run into trouble and the descriptors shift from daring and dauntless to selfish reckless, and full of hubris. When we muster the courage to follow Jesus, to set out after him toward the unknown, it won't take long for us to run right into a storm. This storm might not require us to lose or even leave our actual homes, but it will plunge us into a place of deep, disorientation, where what once made sense makes no sense, where we feel like a stranger to ourselves and even to those who know us best. The good news is that in that storm, 
that place of disorientation, if we can open our hearts and minds enough to ask, God, what can you do for me? We will discover that God is with us every moment and every step of the way, holding a place of calm in the midst of every storm so that we might come through the storm not only with a whole new perspective, a bigger heart, a deeper capacity for empathy and compassion, but also with the knowledge that what matters most cannot be packed in a bag for the journey, for this is a journey fueled and sustained by God's love and grace. So whatever season we find ourselves in, a season of grief and mourning, a season of confusion and questioning, a season of fear and doubt, even a season where we don't see any storm on the horizon. May we find the courage to admit our need, to reveal our vulnerability, to ask not just what we can do for God and others, but what God can do for us. And may we be surrounded with sure and unshakable confidence that as long as we journey in God's world, God journeys with us, and we are never far from home. Amen.